12,588 feet above sea level, high in the barren peaks of Stony Pass, Colorado. Snow melts into droplets of water that become tricklets, that become streams, which become tributaries. The 335,000 square mile watershed of the Rio Grande, the river that defines much of the 1900 mile border between the US and Mexico. It flows past Texas on the north side and on the south, six different states in Mexico on its final leg to the Gulf. Presently, the Rio Grande provides means of life to around six million people, flowing through arid lands, rocky lands, a national park even, and dense population centers. But it has been lifeblood to this part of the world forever. And more than a century ago, it became the trigger point for a decisive war between neighbors many today do not understand, if they even remember it happened. Hello all, I'm Don Wildman and this is American History Hit. We're glad to have you. Just north of the famous Flatiron Building in Manhattan, at Broadway and Fifth Avenue, an intersection teeming with taxis, buses, and bike messengers, is a stolid obelisk carved of granite. Measuring more than 50 feet tall, this towering monument stands isolated on its own traffic island, protected by a perimeter of black cast iron fencing and inscribed up and down each side with names of famous battle sites. On the front is a detailed bronze relief of a man on horseback wearing a plumed helmet. This is a memorial to a soldier hero of the 19th century, a man today known to few New Yorkers, but who once was so significant to his city and nation as to have his remains paraded through the streets by more than 6,000 soldiers and then interred within a monument dedicated to his legacy. The only other war veteran so honored in New York, Ulysses S. Grant, in his more famous tomb uptown. This is the Worth Memorial, honoring Colonel Brevet Major General William Jenkins Worth, who fought in three U.S. conflicts, but most notably in the Mexican-American War, in a number of pivotal battles. It was Worth who, in September 1847, eventually charged up the steps of the National Palace in Mexico City and raised the American flag in a gesture of final victory. It was the Iwo Jima moment of the Mexican-American War. But if Americans are murky on the details of Worth's career, they're mostly vague on the events of the war that made him famous. And this is odd, considering the Mexican-American War is certainly one of the most consequential conflicts in U.S. history, if not the world. From 1846 to 1848, merely two years, U.S. forces fought their way from southern Texas and the Gulf of Mexico all the way to the Mexican capital, and in doing so, forced a treaty that secured for their nation an expansive amount of territorial gains. Say what you will about manifest destiny and American expansionism. If you take any pride in the idea of an American stretching from sea to shining sea, you have the Mexican-American War to thank for it. Not to mention William Jenkins Worth and many others like him. And today we have an authority on the subject. Author Peter Gardino published in 2020 the prize-winning account of this war between neighbors, Dead March, the history of the Mexican-American War. He is a professor of history at Indiana University, and we are very pleased to have him on American History Hit. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Have you ever seen that monument? Have you ever walked up to it and touched it? No, I have not. <laughs> I only know about that monument because I was locking my bicycle on that gate. 
you know, I worked in New York. I was an actor in New York all those days. And I locked my bike up and I was like, what is this thing? And I just noticed this profound monument in the middle of this busy intersection. And it really was the first time I ever became aware of William Worth, for one thing, that his body was in there and that this Mexican-American war was that important. This struggle, Peter, was really the result of an America determined to gain ground, wanting to grow to the side of the continent. But how did this come to pass? I want to talk about Manifest Destiny before we get into the war, because it's such a major theme of this, right? The phrase comes from a journalist, John O'Sullivan. But where did the feeling come from? Well, first of all, not all Americans believed in Manifest Destiny. I mean, this was a controversial, and sometimes the way they play this in textbooks you know, nowadays it doesn't show it as a controversial war. Generally speaking, it was Democrats and Westerners and Southerners who wanted to expand through the acquisition of territory. Many Whigs and Northerners mm. from the Northeast, they were interested in expansion, but in commercial expansion. They wanted American business to be across the world and across this expanse. They didn't think the territory was necessarily a great way to go because they worried that as the U.S. acquired mm. more and more territory, it would become less and less democratic less and less the republic that they thought it should be. These people who wanted this territorial expansion were very important. Some of them were slave owners in the South. And one of the, the brutal facts about cotton is that it exhausts the soil. If you aren't constantly looking for new ground, especially before there were modern fertilizers, your cotton production would just keep going down year after year after year. So that was a big part of that. There were many people in the Mississippi watershed, the whole area drained by the Mississippi, the Ohio, and the Missouri, what's now the Midwest and the South, who were very interested in expansion for other kinds of agriculture, although most of that agriculture was selling to Southern plantation owners, things like corn, things like hogs, things like that. So they were very interested in these things. And we had a history of expansionism, of expanding, especially against people that some Americans believe didn't deserve to hold that land because they weren't using it productively. In other words, Native Americans. Okay. And so, so to some degree, you can see the whole American expansion into Texas and then later the war of the U.S. is in a, a continuation of the pattern of things where we had expanded at the expense of Native Americans, including in the sense of sending squatters to sit on territory that was nominally part of the U.S. This leads to violence and eventually the federal government intervenes and actually acquires the territory. So there was sort of a terrific amount of demand for new territory. People didn't really understand how dry the U.S. Southwest was. Once you get much west of Houston and Texas, it turns pretty dry. Most of New Mexico and Arizona, Colorado are actually very dry. California, American merchants who had gone to California and intermarried with Mexican families in California were sending back really great reports about how wonderful California was, at least before global warming. It was pretty wonderful. So we were, people were very interested in all of this. And sort of the assumption was that we were just going to keep mm -hmm. expanding. But remember, not everyone believed in this. It's interesting. That's a very surprising point that comes up when you do a lot of reading about this stuff and in your book, the sense that it wasn't a real smart idea to get too big too fast. And that's because of the industrial bases of America building. And they were realizing that the future of this country really is in the factories and the manufacturing base that's going on mostly in the Northeast. It becomes evident to people that this takes time to figure out and really organize and there's plenty of space. I mean, we have the Louisiana Purchase. It goes all the way out there now. So let's just calm down and make this thing work. But on the other side of it is the politics, especially having to do with slavery. All this catches fire by the dispute that happens in Texas. This is another background issue we have to sort of flesh out for people. Texas was, of course, originally part of Mexico. And then there's the revolution in Mexico. And then there's a revolution in Texas. And for a bit of time, Texas is its own independent republic. 
Then what happens? So Texas is its own independent republic. And then there are efforts to annex Texas. President Tyler gets around opposition to annexing Texas by having it not be a treaty that had to be approved by the Senate, but instead what they called a joint resolution, which only had to have a majority of all people in the House of Representatives and people in the Senate put together. So it was easier to do. So the U.S. acquires Texas through this joint resolution, which is quite controversial. And then Polk takes advantage of that to provoke a war with Mexico because the boundaries of Texas as a part of Mexico had been the Nueces River. But Texans, after independence, claimed that the boundary of the river that Americans call the Rio Grande, the Rio Grande, which is several miles, you know, more than 100 miles south. And then what's more important is that those rivers diverge even much more as they go inland. Okay, so when they're claiming that Rio Grande boundary, they're actually claiming most of New Mexico along with this. Nice. No one really believes the Texans claim, including many people in the United States. But Polk sends, gathers together forces from this small regular U.S. army that have been posted in forts across the West. So President Tyler figures out a way to annex Texas against this terrific opposition there is to it among Whigs in the United States. And what he does is he says, we're not going to have a treaty between Texas and the United States, which would need to be approved by a majority of senators. But instead, we're going to have a joint resolution where we just add the votes of all people in Congress and all people in the House of Representatives and all senators, and that will be enough to get this done. It's a very clever political maneuver. Soon after that, Polk becomes president. James Polk becomes president. And he really wants to use Texas to open up to the United States, most of what is today the Southwest in California. And the way he does this is by provoking Mexico. Mexico has refused to sell this territory to the United States. And so Polk decides he wants to actually provoke them into some sort of a small war. He's very interested in keeping the war small at that point, basically trying to strong arm them out of territory. I want to just play devil's advocate for one second, because I subscribe to the controversy of this. I think it was a provoked war. It's not like Johnson and the Gulf of Tonkin incident and all that sort of thing. We've done this stuff a lot in history. But in this case, Mexico was not very involved up in these areas, was it? It was a poorly managed part of that country. They were way beyond their capacities for managing these territories. And I don't mention that in a, you know, hey, they should give it away to us. I'm just saying that's what the Americans were seeing, right? They were understanding that that was the case. So the argument was that they weren't using these territories correctly. Mm -hmm. Most Americans who believed this didn't understand how dry these territories mm -hmm. were, how population had to be very dispersed in these territories. There were very few, most of these places outside of a few river valleys. The only way to make any kind of living was through hunting and trapping or through running cattle. And all these things meant that populations would be extremely diverse. The people actually doing that in these territories included you know, Americans who were, you know, trading for skins, Mexicans who were trading for skins, Native Americans and many different groups were actually doing these things. Our notion of like what is there now is actually, you know, how developed a place like New Mexico or Arizona is even now. Actually, that was much later when mining is discovered mm. there, when minerals are discovered there, which is much later in the 19th right. century. So at this moment in the 1830s, 1840s, it's not like the U.S. is going to be able to send people in there to farm. What are you going to farm, right? You know, west of Houston, there's just no place to farm. So Polk wants to get Mexico to sell this territory. And the artifice he settles on is that the Texans have claimed a boundary of the Rio Grande River for Texas. In fact, the previous boundary, while it was part of Mexico, had always been the Nueces River, which is about 100 miles further north on the coast. But more importantly, those rivers diverge terrifically after that to the point where if you're claiming the Rio Grande River, you're also claiming most of New Mexico mm. because that river goes up in its origins in New Mexico. 
That's very enlightening to me because I always wonder what's the big difference between the Nueces and the Rio Grande. It's only 100 miles of territory, but it's the destination or at least the source of these rivers that you're really talking about, right? Right. And so Polk gathers most of the small American regular army that existed from frontier fords or from coastal fords where they were protecting American ports. He gathers them together and he stands them under General Taylor's, under General Dockery Taylor, to Corpus Christi, which is just on the Texas side of the Nueces River, and then sends them all the way to the Rio Grande. The officers in this force, these professional officers, many of them West Point grads, know that they're actually going into Mexican territory when they're doing this. If you actually look at their diaries, for instance, Taylor's aide de camp says, literally, they sent us a map in which this is part of Texas. What a joke. <laughs> and they camp there in Mexican territory. And that's what actually sort of provokes this war. And so the Mexicans are well aware of this, and they send their own force to attack. And this provocation is how Polk is encouraged to declare war or ask Congress to declare war, which happens on April 25th, 1846. So the problem the Americans have at that point is they can win battles in northern Mexico and they win battles. What is the Texas side of the border? A couple of different battles there, Palo Alto, Arisaca de Palma. That isn't enough to force the Mexicans to the negotiating table. We send American troops a little upriver and then down to Monterey, which is the first major city in Mexico. Mm -hmm. We're able to, after a very fierce battle, take Monterey. But it's still not going to be enough. You're still very far from the centers of Mexican population. You're very far from where most Mexicans live. There's a lot of desert to cross before you're going to get there. And it's very difficult yep. for armies to cross desert before motorized transport. And at that point, the American effort in northern Mexico is completely stalled. They can't force Mexico to sell this territory by just sitting in northern Mexico. And they can't advance further through the desert to places further south in Mexico. Sure. And meanwhile, back in, in Washington, I mean, Polk is, is being censured for this. There's a split Congress about this sort of thing. This is a very controversial in real time at that moment. It's very controversial in real time. And the Whigs, where they heard about those first battles, there's this burst of patriotism. And the rhetoric is that American troops are at risk along this border. And the Whigs go along with this initial declaration of war for that. They can't abandon American troops in the field. But then as the war grinds on just a few months further, the Whig support for the war basically evaporates. Major Whig politicians are very much against the war. Up and coming Whig politicians like Abraham Lincoln are very much against the war. Lincoln first becomes famous in Congress as a very young representative from the state of Illinois. He becomes known as Spotty Lincoln because one of his things he says in his speech is he wants Polk to show him the spot where American blood was shed on American soil because he knows that spot was actually in Mexico. <laughs> so he's known as Spotty Lincoln. But the Biggest problem that Polk has, though, is that he's got no way to really strong or Mexico. He feels that Mexico is not really a real country, that most Mexicans are not very attached to that country. It should be pretty easy to bully these people into giving up territory. And it turns out really not to be the case. Yeah. Most Mexicans are actually quite attached to Mexico. And especially as long as the war is going on in the North, they're willing to give money. They're willing to recruit soldiers, all those sorts of things for this war. And Mexico just doesn't turn Bellway up for Polk the way he'd like them to. The major figure on their side, on the Mexican side, is Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the famous Santa Ana, who at that point, the beginning of the war, was in exile, political exile in Cuba, but is asked to come back and head up this effort to defend their nation, which he does. He's a very good fighter, isn't he? Well, he's good at some things and not so good at other things. He's not a great tactician in mm. terms of tactical things. He's much better at strategy. And what he does better than anyone else is he knows how 
to get Mexicans to cooperate and pull together and get a military force together and get these men in uniform, get these men weapons, them trained up, make them an effective military force, which he actually sure. does three times during the war. He pulls armies basically out of nothing to cause the Americans problems. That's what he's, what he's really great at. Because we could have stopped him. We had an American blockade of the Mexican coast. Polk gave orders to let Santa Ana through because Santa Ana had, through an intermediary, through basically an American spy, had convinced Polk that, yeah, you let me go back to Mexico and then I will get them to sign a peace treaty, which he yeah. never intended. There must be a heck of a Mexican movie written about this thing. Somebody must have made a big deal of this because it was a very smart maneuver and it really got the Yanks. Oh, it got them good. We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. While you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. You're our best means for building our audience, and we are most grateful for the help. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and I'm thrilled to be joining Matt Lewis to co-present Gone Medieval from History Hit. Twice a week, every week, we set out to answer the big questions that have vexed people for centuries. Like, what did the Romans ever do for us? Roads, buildings, walls, churches, houses, manuscripts. Why did Edward I mourn his Queen Eleanor so much? He was very good at making a show for people to see that was going to influence how they would understand him or his campaigns or anything like that. Did Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok really exist? Maybe yes, maybe no. The sons who were attributed to him were definitely real people. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned something I want to point out here. Again, hearkening back to what I said in the beginning, most Americans have no idea about this war, but they certainly don't know the scope of it. I mean, you had all the military forces at the time, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the halls of Montezuma in the Marine story comes from this conflict. Everybody's engaged on a big scale at this point. Basically, they think the Mexicans are just going to lay down because here we come and they don't have an army. That's not what happens. There's a good long year of struggle. Well, more than a year, but it, it certainly takes a long time. So 
the U.S. forces in northern Mexico are not really accomplishing anything. You can't force Mexico to, to sign a treaty. The U.S. comes up with another plan in which they're going to send in another American army to invade Mexico through Veracruz to the Gulf Coast. It's the first major amphibious invasion the U.S. does. They invade, they land on the beach outside Veracruz, they besiege the city, and they force the city to surrender by bombarding the civilian population, causing massive casualties. And then from there, that army works its way up toward Mexico City. It's not easy. They face major battles at every turn. They face very large numbers of guerrilla fighters who are attacking their supply lines all the way through. But over a period of months, they gradually work their way up to Mexico City. And by August of 1847, they're basically at the gates of Mexico City, mm -hmm. where they engage in another set of very bloody battles, all of which the Americans win, some of which are completely Pyrrhic victories, and that they won a battle but didn't actually gain them anything. And then the biggest problem the Mexicans have over time is that it's one thing to pull these armies together, get them trained, you know, get the troops together. Some of them are volunteers, some of them are conscripts. Either way, they both tend to be actually pretty effective in battle. It's another thing to have the money to keep them together and to keep feeding them, especially. Yep. The biggest problem Mexico has in the course of this war is that the U.S. economy is about three times the size of the Mexican economy. We're always able to equip people. We're always able to feed them. Mm -hmm. We're always able to clothe them. For Mexican generals, the biggest problem they often faced and what even determines where they're going to make a stand and where they're not going to make a stand in several battles is, how am I going to feed my soldiers tomorrow? We don't have any money. Yeah. Well, we better fight today because if you try to keep these guys together and they're starving, they're just going to drift away. No matter right. how patriotic they are, no matter how much comradeship they have with their fellows, if you're not feeding people, they're going to spread out in search of food. Right. The equipping of an army is nine-tenths of the battle, so to speak. There are figures, I and mean, one of the most consequential aspects of this war is that it is a training ground of sorts, you know, a rehearsal for what comes later, the Civil War. So many of the prominent Civil War leaders, both North and South, cut their teeth on battle right here in the Mexican War. We're talking about Grant, Lee, Stonewall Jackson, the rest of them. It's an incredible dress rehearsal, isn't it? It's very much a dress rehearsal, and it's connected in some very ironic ways to the Civil War. Ulysses S. Grant, in his memoirs, says, well, nations like people are punished for their transgressions, and our punishment for you know, invading Mexico and taking the territories, we got the Civil War. Hmm. You know, or the Civil War very much came out of the territory that we acquired, what to do about the territory that we acquired. Grant was a fairly humble lieutenant, and although he plays a very important role around Mexico City, Lee already is a big star in the Army. He's a captain, considered a bright young officer. He's on Winfield Scott's staff and is an officer who goes out and surveys territory through the, the Army is going to move or is going to attack and comes back with recommendations. Has regular contact with the commanding general as a result of this. They make some key discoveries about different ways to get around Mexican positions over the course of the war. Well, Grant is kind of a grunt as a lieutenant. He's no dummy, okay, but, you know, he just hasn't, he hasn't got the grades to be up in Lee's position. And then there's many of these people who are lieutenants and a few captains during this war end up being prominent Civil War officers. In the case of Lee, I mean, Lee is celebrated for finding very unusual ways through this land how to move this army along the way, skills which will later on become a big deal in the Civil War. On Grant's side, he sees what you were speaking of before, the importance of equipping an army. He becomes a quartermaster in the army and he understands how the boring basics of running a big army are actually the most important parts of it. And that will play out in a huge way 
while he has a northern army fighting a southern war. It's really amazing if for no other reason, studying this war, reading your book, I must say, is a really important way to further understand the American Civil War. You know, it really is a one-two punch in, a, in some sorts of ways. Tell me about the differences between Taylor and Scott. That's a major pivot in the war, right? So Taylor is considered to be very popular with his troops, but people don't think that Zachary Taylor is very smart. He cultivates this image where he wears civilian clothing and he's kind of slovenly and regular soldiers can walk out of his town and ask, hey, where do you know where Exit is? And he'll tell them and treat everybody in a very comradely fashion. On the other hand, some soldiers come to not like him because he doesn't seem very smart and he does things like frontal attacks, which get them killed, which it makes him very unpopular with some soldiers, you know, but he's sort of a, a kind of folksy general in a particular tradition of the Democratic Party at that time, although he's technically a Whig. Scott is this guy who was extremely smart and spent a lot of time learning from the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, studying all of that stuff up and trying to import those methods into the American army. He starts doing this actually in the 18-teens during the War of 1812, and he continues it for the rest of his career. So he does things like write manuals mm. that are used to teach other people. On the other hand, he's considered to be a kind of a fuss budget. He wears very fancy uniforms. He eats extremely well and becomes very portly over the course of his career. Some of his soldiers call him old fuss and feathers because he just seems to be kind of a dandy. He's very jealous of his authority. He, you know, he'll listen to people, but, you know, when you give an order, when Scott gives you an order, you're going to actually carry it out or else. And that's sort of his reputation in the war. And so Scott is the one in charge of this invasion through Veracruz up to Mexico City. Well, his preferred thing to do is to outflank Mexican troops rather than face them head on. Mm -hmm. It works for him a lot. There are other occasions in which he gets too impatient and he loses control of the situation. And, and there are really frontal attacks with massive U.S. casualties for very little gain. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, he's probably the best American general uh, before the Civil War in terms of his understanding of how to actually do things. He's also a guy you wouldn't want to spend much time with. He's, <laughs> he's got a big ego. You'd much rather hang out with Zachary Taylor yeah. than Winfield Scott. I think of him in the same way as MacArthur, you know, like the big, big egos. MacArthur with a plume on his head. That would be my Winfield Scott picture. Tell me how, you know, once this war is won, it becomes a treaty that is insanely favorable to the United States. How was this accomplished? We're talking about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago here. And who really made that happen? And uh, what were the circumstances of that negotiation? So the negotiation takes place after the U.S. actually captures Mexico City which has taken an enormous amount of effort. The last act in that was in a revolt by the people of Mexico City against the American forces when the U.S. forces were actually in the center of Mexico City. It's actually another bloody and tragic episode. But after that, the Mexican government, the people in the charge of the Mexican government realized they've got no more resources left. They can recruit soldiers all day long, but they can't feed them. They have to negotiate. The American negotiators, a guy named Nicholas Trist, who Polk had sat down there to negotiate with instructions, and Trist negotiates a treaty in which the U.S. is going to pay a pretty large sum for that for that time and acquire what is today all of New Mexico, Arizona, all of Colorado, all of California, all of Nevada, and a little slice of Utah, a huge amount of territory for, for that amount of money. The negotiations, the Mexican negotiators are very interested in trying to protect the rights of the Mexicans already live there. There are some Mexicans, especially in what is now New Mexico and California. There are a fair number of Mexicans who live there, several thousand. And they want to have them, A, keep the rights to hold the lands that they already hold, to hold title to the land they actually have. They also want them to, to keep the right to keep 
being Catholics, which is very important to Mexican national identity. And one of the problems that they see with the U.S. is that the U.S. is a very Protestant nation and very actually anti-Catholicism was extremely strong in the U.S. before the war, mm -hmm. up to and including burning convents down. So this was you know, something that Mexicans really wanted to preserve. And so that's what they're after. They know they have to give the territory, but the Mexican negotiators are after like, okay, what can we do to protect the rights of Mexicans in these territories? The problem they have is that after they negotiate this territory with Trift, it has to be approved by the Congress of Mexico and the Congress of the United States, by the Senate of the United States. When they send it to the U.S. Senate, the U.S. Senate strips out all those protections for Mexicans in those territories hmm. and send it back to Mexico and say, hey, here's the revised treaty. You can approve this one. And at that point, the Mexicans have absolutely no choice. Right. You know, by then, it's, it's very late in the game. They have absolutely no choice. They, they pretty much have to approve this. What does the name Guadalupe Hidalgo come from? It comes from the place the treaty was signed, which is just this little tiny town, which is actually a neighbor of Mexico City now, which is called Guadalupe Hidalgo. Guadalupe comes from the Virgin of Guadalupe. Yeah, Hidalgo comes from the man who started the Mexican Independence War in 1810. It's just really from the town. That really is specific reference to those people. It requires that Mexico cede to the United States all of what becomes New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, California, Texas, and Western Colorado, all for the bargain price of $15 million and the U.S. assumption of its citizens' claims against Mexico. That's an amazing negotiation. It really seals the deal for Mexico, doesn't it? I mean, they lose 55% of their land. They lose 55% of their land. There's much irony here in the sense of eventually many Mexicans come to be living in those territories. Yeah, that's true. In the 20th century and even starting in the late 19th century because someone has to develop it all. They need labor to do that. And it ends up being largely Mexican labor to do that. I don't know. I, maybe it's because I care about history, but every time I hear about immigrant problems, the border wall, all this stuff, I really do think about this time. You know, and I think, God, why do Americans not get the fact that this was really what happened here and that it really was Mexico? And, you know, no wonder we have such a porous border and so forth. It's, it's just incredible. Well, the other irony is that when the U.S. acquired all that territory, it wasn't worth much. Outside yeah. of California and a few river valleys in New Mexico, it wasn't worth much. Right. You could run some cattle in some places. You sure. could trap. And, you know, beavers were still a big deal in trapping. And what happened afterwards, starting with the famous gold rush in California, but then continuing through mineral rush after mineral rush throughout Colorado yep. and Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada, was mineral strike after mineral strike. Yep. Not just gold, but silver, copper, a huge deal in Arizona, um, all of these things. And it's that which, you know, if you think about, like, even sort of Western movies that are set in places like Arizona, it's all mining towns. Okay. Mm -hmm, yeah. And the conflicts are over at mining, standing in Colorado. It's that that makes this a going concern for the U.S. Which is another indication of what was really driving this thing. I mean, the value of metals. There had already been excursions out there, figuring out expeditions, figuring out what was going on in, in these lands. I mean, how much did Americans know what we would get out of this war before we fought it? I think that most of them thought about it in terms of agricultural land, and they were mm. completely wrong about that. <laughs> they had no concept of how dry the Southwest was, right? You know, certainly that's what they were after. I'm thinking of John Wesley Powell and those guys who come out just a few decades later and who figure out how to, you know, make the water happen. There are already mines at work here figuring out what's out there and how we can creatively exploit these lands. But that all comes later when there are sort of more technology that you can use to do things mm. like build dams and build canals. So that's sort of last half of the 19th century kind of thing. 
when you have railroads, you have steam shovels, you have dynamite. Dynamite had not been invented yet either. Have all these things where you can actually remake the ecology of the landscape and do things like dam the rivers and build and dig very deep canals, often with Mexican labor. That kind of agricultural development comes later when we have a technology. And also when we have, you know, the industrial revolution has advanced to the point where we have a tremendous demand for all of these products too. So that you really are, you know, circling back to where we started, which is that this was driven primarily by a manifest destiny theme and therefore political in its nature, right? Oh, it's all very political in its nature. That's amazing. The engine of this whole war was about that stuff, which is, you know, attaches to it a certain amount of shame and, and embarrassment about the war in our history because the motivations weren't exactly noble. I just want to go through some statistics here. The U.S. gains 500,000 square miles. For this, we pay with 10,000 troops who have died of illness, over 1,500 killed in action or dying of battle wounds. Yellow fever is a big deal, you know, all the disease that is encountered in this kind of thing. 25,000 Mexicans are killed or wounded in this one. You know, there is a real price paid for this. But like we're talking about, nobody had any idea of what the West was really going to become. Yeah. History can be very ironic that way. One aspect of this that we did not talk about is the abolition aspect of this, the slavery implications having to do with the acquisition of all of this. How much was, was this manifest destiny driven by that desire? I think you addressed it by saying we needed new lands, we needed new areas, and for that we would need the South at least thought that we needed to extend those slavery states. So, you know, the question arises after the war of What's going to happen with all of this territory? People still don't know how dry it is. Southerners want slavery to be allowed there because they're imagining Arizona being kind of like East Texas, where you can actually grow cotton. Well, yeah. They're completely wrong about that. And they really want to establish the principle that all new territories are territories where you should be able to hold slaves. Mm-hmm. Many Northerners and many people in what was now the Midwest are unhappy with that. They're, they want to see a U.S. based on free labor and on slave labor. And uh, this leads to you know, a series of conflicts that spin out completely out of control, uh, leading eventually to Lincoln's presidential campaign as a leader in the relatively new Republican Party and to Lincoln becoming president. And at that point, civil war becomes really inevitable. It's a war that the Southerners go into with a great deal of confidence and Northerners go into with uh, a lot less confidence. But it plays out in a lot of ways like the Mexican War did. The side that has the most resources is almost inevitably going to win this war. I mean, the North had just a, a much larger economy, a much stronger economy. You know, Lee faces a lot of the problems that Mexican generals faced during the Mexican War. In fact, the whole Gettysburg campaign is driven mostly by the fact that the soldiers don't have any shoes, they don't have yeah. anything to eat, they don't have anything to wear. Well, we better invade Pennsylvania and get these things, yeah, which yeah, leads yeah. directly to Gettysburg. In a lot of ways, the South has the same problems that Mexico did, including having an American fleet blockade its coast and not allow it to engage in commerce and not allow it to collect revenue. So that's another way in which, besides the, you know, these young officers in Mexican war who were generals in the Civil War, this is another way in which the two are very connected. And people don't really think about that. People like to think about the Civil War in terms of, you know, you know very smart generals and generals who were not so smart and battles and heroism. And they don't think about how the economics of the situation actually so much favored the North. Oh no, you have starving soldiers at the end of this whole thing who just don't have enough to eat. Same old story. Peter Gardino is the author of The Dead March, a history of the Mexican-American War. I really recommend it. It's fascinating history, and it's an important piece of knowledge if you're going to understand what comes later, a decade and a half later, when the Civil War is fought by many of the people who first began their careers in the Mexican-American War. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I very much enjoyed this. 
Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies, to powerful political movements, to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. This podcast includes music from Epidemic Sound. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.